Our scripture lesson this morning is chosen with a sense of care and expectancy for the particular season in which we find ourselves today. And I ask you to pay very special attention, if you will, to the reading of these words found in the 8th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, beginning with the 10th verse. The writer says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good that he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you're eaten satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God, and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Let me lift out of these verses one verse or a portion of one verse, the 19th verse for your special consideration this morning, where the writer says, if you forget about the Lord your God and you worship other gods instead and follow evil ways, you will certainly perish. To me, whether you agree or whether you may disagree, to me, there is nothing in all of the world quite like a 4th of July celebration. And I make this observation for two reasons. First of all, it is in part a salute to patriotism. It is a moment in which we think about those that have made our nation the nation in which we have grown up, the nation of which we are a part, those who have so freely given of themselves that we might enjoy the freedoms which we are privileged now to enjoy. It is in part a sense of patriotism in which the flags fly a little bit higher than they fly at any other time during the year. A time in which we sing the national anthem with a sense of pride a little bit more than at any other time we ever sing it. It's a time in which we think about our forefathers and all of the attributes of freedom uh, that we enjoy as in life in these United States of America. 
And I'm convinced, whether I'm right or wrong, I'm convinced, at least in my own mind, that we experience a sense of patriotism on the 4th of July unlike any other sense of patriotism we ever experience, even though there are other times during the year in which our hearts are turned and our minds begin to rethink of the kind of history out of which we have come and the foundation on which we have been built. There is a sense of patriotism that arises on the 4th of July unlike any other time during the year. And it is also a time in which we relive at least for a few moments all that we have known and all that we have enjoyed. I do not know why it is that way, but there is something about a 4th of July celebration. There is something about a 4th of July weekend that causes most of us, at least those over 21 years of age, it causes us to relive something of the past out of which we have come and look back in a nostalgic sort of way at the kind of nation in which we have grown up, those material things that have made our life what our life now is. And at least for just a little while during our uh, year's activities, we go back over the past out of which we have come and we celebrate the things that have brought us the civilization which we are now privileged to enjoy. And this year, of course, our 4th of July celebration has been just a little bit different to any other 4th of July most of us have ever experienced. We find ourselves coming to a climax of one of the greatest weekends of our life. We have had a very special celebration because we have seen the relighting of the torch of liberty uh, held high in the hands of Miss Liberty. And we have seen the way in which people have gathered from not only across these United States, but from across the world to celebrate once again the principles of freedom that Miss Liberty represents and that are incorporated in all of the idealism of the foundation of these United States of America. And yet, as nostalgic as this weekend may have been, we cannot possibly let it pass without stopping to consider the message such a challenge inevitably brings with it to our life as a nation and to our lives as individuals. Some time ago, I received a bulletin from a, a preacher friend of mine in which he was writing to the congregation something of the importance of the 4th of July celebration. And in closing his article, he made this observation. He said, let's do more than sing. America, America, God shed his grace on thee. He said, let's say, America, America, God shed his grace on thee and make me an instrument of brotherhood, of morality, integrity, faith, and peace. And then he ended his article with this sentence. Let's examine our own attitude and feelings. Let's look carefully and prayerfully at our own lifestyle and then determine if we are a part of the problem or the solution.
And now in the words of our text, the writer of the book of Deuteronomy reminds us of the importance of such an examination within our own life and within the life as a nation. Speaking to the children of Israel with whom we have compared ourselves almost from the earliest days of our existence, speaking to the children of Israel, the writer reminds them of the way in which they have developed themselves as a people and as a nation. Reminding them again and again of the way in which God has ordained the nation from its earliest inception. The way in which God has provided for the physical needs of their life. The way in which God has given to them a sense of guidance and a sense of direction. And then he says to them, If you forget about the Lord your God... And if you come to the place where you worship other gods instead, in parentheses, regardless of how great those gods may seem or how powerful they may seem at the moment, regardless of how good they may be even, he says, if you forget the Lord your God and you worship other gods instead, and if you follow evil ways, then he said, as a people and as a nation, you shall surely perish. And so this morning, I want us, as we come to the end of this 4th of July celebration, I want us to look at some of the problems we face as individuals, as a nation, as a society. Some of the problems we face, and then look at the way in which instead of continuing the problems as they now exist, the way in which we can become a part of the solution to these problems, that our nation not only will continue to exist, but it will grow and continue to be the dominating influence for good uh, that most of us feel our nation was founded to become. There are several things I lift up for your consideration. The first of these now, one of the basic problems with which we are faced as a nation is a problem of brotherhood. And it seems to me the time has come when we need to decide that we can live together in peace and harmony with all peoples regardless of whom they may be or whether or not we may agree with what they do and what they say and the other ideas ideas by which they live. Now I'm sure that most of you at one time or another have heard sermon after sermon preached on brotherhood. And I have no inclination whatsoever to share with you uh, any other idea about brotherhood as it relates to different ideas or different subjects or different topics. I simply want to say that one of the problems we face as a nation in a matter of survival is incorporated in the idea that all too often we simply cannot live with those with whom we disagree. And we are growing more and more in our tendencies to feel that all people ought to agree. And if you and I can't agree, then we can't be brothers and sisters. 
And I don't know of any greater fallacy ever created in the mind of humanity than this idea in its total erroneous assumption. Jesus laid down in a very specific way the principle of brotherhood. When he said the essence of all true religion is to treat other people exactly as you would like for them to treat you. Let me tell you something. We can solve, I believe, 100% of the problems that we face as a society if we will incorporate in our lives the ideal of the golden rule. It's just that simple. Whether we are dealing in business relationships, in professional relationships, in social intercourse, whatever it is, if we will treat other people exactly as we would like for them to treat us, or as we would like to be treated. And my dear friends, we can solve most of the problems with which we're faced. It's simple. The problem is a problem of brotherhood, and the solution is the golden rule, which is at the very foundation of Christianity and of our faith and the message of Jesus Christ. He gave it in his own way, in his own words. Whether you agree with the words that I say or not, uh, there ought to be the freedom for us to express ourselves with our own ideas whether we agree or whether we disagree. The second problem that I would mention and is incorporated in the words of my friend is a matter of morality. Here again, uh, we confront one of the basic problems of society. Not altogether an immoral society as an amoral society. And there is a difference in a society that is immoral and a society in which morals just don't seem to make much difference. And it seems to me that the problem we face is not necessarily a problem of immorality as it is a problem in which morals just don't seem to make much difference. We don't really challenge the moral standards of those elected officials. We don't necessarily challenge the morals of what comes across the screen of the television that we and our children watch. We don't really challenge the idea of morality at all. We, we just assume, oh well, everything is going to work out all right. Theodore Roosevelt, whom some of you may recognize as one of the great leaders of our nation, some of you may not, but Theodore Roosevelt once said, to educate a man in mind and not in morals is to educate a menace to society. And it could be that what we have done is the very thing that Roosevelt warned us against. That we have educated a society in which morals really don't make much difference. Now the solution is the Christian ethic. The solution is to observe the standards of Christ as they relate to the principles of morality. 
And we do not have time to go into great length at what those standards are except to put into principle or to put into practice the principles of our faith, the principles by which Jesus lived, in which he had a sense of respect for the character of those individuals with whom he lived. And closely related to the problem of, of morality, there's another one, and that is the problem of integrity. As I thought about this, I was not quite sure they could be altogether separated, and yet there is a sense of separation. And it may be that this matter of integrity is a little bit more specific, at least for us to understand because we can readily understand what it means to do business with those individuals who have absolutely no feeling of integrity, in which you can't trust those with whom you live, those with whom you do business, those with whom you are interrelated on a day-to-day -day sort of basis. John Bennett, in his writing of Social Christianity, defines integrity as the harmony between a man's inner purpose and his outer actions. The actions that arise out of the result of what we are on the inside. One of the great preachers of a past generation was a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon once said, in speaking of William Gladstone, we believe in no man's infallibility. Everybody makes mistakes. You know, that, that's, that's, this is a commonly accepted fact. We're all going to make mistakes. We believe in no man's infallibility, but it is restful to feel sure of one man's integrity. And is it not reassuring in our life and in our world to realize that what a person says we can take to the bank. When they tell us black is black and white is white, this is something on which we can depend and something on which we can rely. I don't know of anything in the world that would tap the resources of our nation any more effectively or ably than for us to recapture that feeling a person's word is his bond. You know, I think I mentioned this a few day, a few Sundays ago, and I don't mean to be repetitious, but it disturbs me as a person, not as a preacher, but as a person. It disturbs me for anybody, and particularly those people that are running for office, to say to me what they think I want them to say and turn around and say to you something altogether different because they think that's what you want to hear. It disturbs me when I walk into a place of business and try to buy something and, and knowing full well that I'm not getting the quality that I'm paying for. It disturbs me to live in a society in which I have to lock my doors because I live in fear of being attacked. Not by the criminal element of the world, but by 
people that are taking advantage of me on a one-to-one basis? And the answer is in a matter of integrity and a matter of morality. To believe, to trust, And you know the only place that this is going to change? It's when you and I as individuals are willing to stand and say, I am going to be truthful regardless of the price I might have to pay or the lack of profit I might be privileged to enjoy. Whether you agree with it or not, it's the truth. Here's the solution. And then, of course, there is another problem that's closer to home, and that's the problem of faith. You know, all of the leaders of our nation, all of our founding fathers, may not have been shining examples of Christian character. They weren't. If you studied history, you know as well as I do that they were not altogether shining examples. Sometimes we have made them to be. And yet, there is woven into the very foundation of the American democracy and Americanism, there is woven into this idea that we are one nation under God. And we are where we are today in part because those who built our nation came seeking religious freedom. They believed in the power of God. They believed in the reality of faith. And we can become indifferent to God and lax in our faith. And when we do, we do it at the peril, not only of our own souls, but at the souls, at the peril of the souls of those for whom we are responsible and who come after us. You see, it's not only important for us as individuals to open the doors of the church and keep alive the message of Christianity to meet the needs of our life, but we've got to give those that are yet to come something of the same thing we have received and a part of it. Is religious freedom. A part of it is Christianity. A part of it is the idea of God, the reality of God. And we get all worked up when the Supreme Court hands down a decision that outlaws prayer in schools. We get all worked up about that without ever stopping to think we have neglected in around the family altar the prayers in the homes where the greatest influence is made on the lives of the children for whom we are responsible. And I think we need to get more excited about those things, and then these other things will take care of themselves. If we demand of ourselves a conviction of faith, and if we observe the principles of Christianity out of which our nation has grown, then you can rest assured that all of these things on the peripheral will be taken care of. And we don't have to worry about what goes on in the schools because we will have sent a child to school that knows the presence of God and the difference the presence of God can make 
within their life. And you may not agree with that. In fact, some of you don't. I made an observation such as that once, and a lady chastised me after it's all over, and I don't care. That doesn't bother me in the least. I still believe it. I heard a preacher say once that he resented the fact that anybody else ever had to talk to his children about the ideals of Christianity. And I may not have ever said that, but I realized some 26 years ago that the religious training of my children didn't begin in the public schools nor even in the church if they didn't learn it from me and from their mother they weren't going to learn it at all the problem is a lack of faith on our part and the solution is a devotion and a dedication to the ideals of Christianity and the power of God and the message of God. And then there's one other thing, and that is we are called to be an instrument of peace. A great many of you have served your country, and you have either suffered wounds yourselves or watched those for whom you had developed a great affection fall to the wayside and come home crippled or not at all. And you know as well as I know that war is hell in every sense of the word. Do you know where peace comes from? Peace comes from God. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. I sort of have a feeling the time has come when the church, when Christ's body must stand and be counted for peace. If we are ever going to know the peace on earth, goodwill toward men, of which the angels sang on the night of Christ's birth. Peace comes out of love. You don't kill those that you love. I didn't say it comes out of liking. I don't really care too much about this word like bother me too much we may not like a lot of people but if we don't love humanity enough to give hung to give food to the hungry and nation to them and clothes to the naked then we have failed at the point of where Jesus spoke so earnestly and sincerely to the human race. And when we grasp the ideal, the ideals of which Jesus spoke and demand action to be taken by which love can be felt and experienced, 
then we will have sown the seeds of peace that ultimately will arise in a harvest of brotherly love and brotherhood and all of the other things about which we speak. Help us, our Heavenly Father, never to lose sight of the ideals on which our nation was founded, nor the principles out of which our life has come to be lived, that truly we may be thy people and we may serve in the way in which thou wouldst have us to serve. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.